Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Royal Bank of Scotland Corner Theatre at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name's Lorna Duncanson, and I'm here from Seven Stories in Newcastle. We are the National Centre for Children's Books, based, obviously, in the heart of Newcastle in Usburn Valley. And we are seven floors of manuscripts and illustration works from some of the best-loved children's authors and illustrations, also illustrators, who have been around since sort of 1945, 1946. Um, we have two floors of gigantic exhibitions which are all based around the works that we've been collecting, that have been kindly donated to us by people such as Nick Sharrett and Philip Pullman, Joan Lingard. And one of the best loved children's authors is actually here with us today, Michelle Magorian. Um, she's going to be reading from her new book, Just Henry, which is sure to be an absolute best-selling hit. It's it's just a heart-wrenching book. It was absolutely beautiful. The same way all of her characters are just absolutely beautifully human and flawed and just create a whole world of emotions inside of you. You only have to look at Goodnight, Mr. Tom, which has been a best-selling hit for the last over 25 years and is still a big bestseller today to know that she is an absolutely incredible woman. So without further ado, Michelle McGorian. Thank you very much. Do have to ask, please, no photography throughout Michelle's reading. Thank you. Right. Well, I'm not going to start with the new book straight away, because um, if I talked about it all the time, uh, I'd give away the entire plot. So I'm going to start with a reading from one of my earlier books. And to avoid confusion, my main character has two names. Her real name is Virginia, and her nickname is Rusty. The saleswoman, who was a well-spoken woman in her 50s, knelt down and checked that the hem of Rusty's gym slip fell to the center of her knees. Perfect, said the woman. As Rusty turned to look in the full-length mirror, she heard the woman whispering discreetly to her mother, oh, By the way, madam, she said, I'd just like to remind you that the headmistress has obtained a license from the Board of Trade, allowing us to sell second-hand school garments without taking coupons. Oh, that's marvellous, said Peggy. She's such a sensible woman. She's already said that if my daughter has an overcoat, we needn't buy the school cape. Rusty gazed into the mirror. The gym slip was dark green and an awful shape. It fell in wide box pleats from the bust around which she had to wear the colored girdle of the house she was in. Hers was red. Underneath the gym slip, she wore a beige blouse. Around her neck was a green tie with a beige and red stripe running through it, the red again indicating the colour of her house. Rusty watched in horror as the saleswoman proceeded to lay out the most archaic underwear Rusty had ever seen. Pairs of long green bloomers were held up against her. You don't mean I have to wear those, she said. Her mother nodded. All the girls do. It's part of the uniform. She picked up what looked like a pair of ordinary heavy white underpants. These are called linings. You wear them underneath the knickers. Ah, uh, 
Rusty picked up a long woolly garment with short sleeves. And this, she asked, is this an, an undershirt? Yes, it's what we call a vest. This should keep you warm. The saleswoman straightened Rusty's tie and pinned a tie pin onto it. And now, she said, glancing at Rusty's long red hair, I'd better find some ribbons. Her mother sighed. Oh, yes, madam, said the saleswoman. It never ends, does it? I can wear it like this, suggested Rusty. Her mother shook her head. If you have long hair, you have to wear it away from your forehead in plaits. And the ribbons have to be the regulation colour and width. You're kidding. Here, said her mother. Try this on. It was a square green jacket with a beige gold braid around the edges of the lapels and pockets. A shield was embroidered on the single breast pocket with some Latin wording around it. This is your school blazer, she said. Rusty slipped it on. The saleswoman wrapped a striped green and beige scarf around her neck and placed a green round-brimmed hat on Rusty's head. Rusty wondered what the Omsk would say if they could see her. Well, Aunt Hannah always said that green suited her, but then so did blue and yellow and cream and oh, she thought of skeet and she couldn't help smiling. He would just crack up. And Janie, she'd either gasp and say how it didn't do anything for her figure, or she'd swoon and go all Anglophile and say how wild it must be to go to a real English girls' boarding school. Suddenly, Rusty longed to be with Uncle Bruno and have him wrap his big arms around her and hug her tight. But they weren't finished. Her mother bought brown lace-up shoes, galoshes, sandals, a pair of black canvas shoes with rubber soles that looked a little like sneakers but were called plimsoles, lacrosse boots, stockings, a Greek dance tunic, two pairs of flannel pyjamas and a plaid woolen dressing gown. But when Rusty and her mother left the shop laden with large bags and boxes, it was pouring with rain. They stumbled into a Jay Lyons tea shop nearby. And Rusty's mother told her the names of the four schoolhouses. They were Nightingale, Curie, Fry, and Butt. But, exclaimed Rusty, yes, that's your house, the red one. Rusty doubled over, laughing. Uh, I don't see what's so funny, said Peggy. Nightingale House is after Florence Nightingale, Curie after Marie Curie, Fry after Elizabeth Fry and Butt after Dame Clara Butt. Rusty almost choked. Virginia, whispered her mother, please behave yourself. Butt house, she repeated. Peggy Dickinson cleared her throat. Dame Clara Butt was a famous classical singer, but her words were having no effect on Rusty. Now come on, Virginia, she said, you're getting hysterical. Rusty leaned over the table. Don't you know what your butt is? Her mother looked blankly at her. It's your ass.
That was from Back Home, which is about a girl who returns to war-torn Britain after having lived in America for five years. Sadly, many of the children who came back were sent off to boarding schools. While their parents' intentions were good, they wanted them to catch up on their English education. But it was a profound shock to many children to be sent away yet again. Some believed that their parents didn't want them and were homesick for a country which wasn't their own. Now, many people have asked me why I have written books set in the 1940s. The answer is that one book often triggers off an idea for another book. So, how did Back Home begin? While I was carrying out research for my first book, Goodnight Mr. Tom, I came across a photograph which caught my attention. It had been taken in 1945 and showed a group of children on the deck of a liner waving. They were the sea evacuees returning home from the States and they looked totally Americanized. The reason why this photograph made such an impact on me was because as a child I had found it very difficult to settle in England after having lived in Australia for two and a half years, but at least I hadn't been separated from my parents. As I stared at the photo, I asked myself, how on earth did these children cope? Well, then I realized that if I was to write a book about their experiences, I would also need to know what they were coming from. In other words, I would need to know what it was like to live in America in the 1940s. Well, that seemed too daunting a task, so I put the photograph aside and wrote another book, which had been triggered off by a scene in Goodnight, Mr. Tom. It was about two sisters who have to look after themselves in a cottage in the middle of nowhere. The younger sister, 17-year-old Rose, who thinks of herself as the ugly duckling to her beautiful sister, finds a hidden story in the cottage and after some disastrous mishaps, not only begins to accept and like herself, but also falls in love. However, when I'd finished writing it, I wasn't satisfied with it, and I decided to put it in the loft for a while. And back came that photograph to haunt me. It was as though the children were saying, we're not going to leave you alone till you write about one of us. I surrendered, began the research, and wrote the book. And later, I took down the book from the loft, and it was published as A Little Love Song in England and Not a Swan in America. Now, around this time, I was offered parts in three very funny comedies. They were called Fado Farces. The director had read back home and told me that it wasn't only children who'd been sent overseas who had trouble adjusting to living with their families again. Children who lived in the English countryside as evacuees had their problems too, and he told me his story. He'd been sent to Devon, where he'd lived with two middle-aged sisters for five years, and had been so happy there that he wanted to stay and be a farmer. But when his father, who was in the army, returned from overseas, he insisted that he come home to an apprenticeship. He was miserable at first, but what cheered him up were the jobs he did in the evenings at two local theatres. He caught the theatre bug, and by the time I met him, 
He was head of drama at a university. His story gave me the seed of my next book, Cuckoo in the Nest, which is all about the ups and downs of 16-year-old Ralph Hollis as he tries to get into his local theatre, which involves, at one point, carrying a huge, life-sized stuffed bear through the pouring rain in the high street amongst much hooting of horns and yells from passers-by. I set this book in the terrible winter of 1947, when snowdrifts caused trains to be abandoned on railway tracks. Vegetables couldn't be dug up, blocks of ice floated in rivers, frozen milk rose up out of milk bottles, and in an artist's shop, the coloured inks exploded out of the bottles and hung in colourful icicles in the shop window. Following this was what came to be called the Big Thaw, when the snow melted and caused floods up and down the country. During one of these floods, Ralph's sister Elsie is abandoned by a gang of children who leave her trapped in a bombed building while the waters slowly rise. This incident made me ask questions about Elsie and the gang of bullies, so I decided to write a book about her and set it in the following hot summer. That became a spoonful of jam. Elsie has just finished her first year at grammar school, but she's dreading the holidays. Her 14-year-old brother, Harry, won't be around to protect her from the gang in the next street, as he will be starting work at the local paper mill. To avoid being beaten up, she auditions for a role in a Victorian thriller at the theatre where Ralph works and is offered the part. Her chaperone, a formidable woman who resembles a Sherman tank, takes her to and from the rehearsals. But one Sunday, when Elsie is going over some scenes at the lodgings of the actress who's playing her mother, her cousin fails to turn up to take her home. And Elsie realises, with growing trepidation, that she will have to go home on her own. I'm sorry I can't walk you home myself, said Annie. That's the actress who's playing her mother. Would you look after my spectacles? I, I sometimes have accidents when I go home. Annie looked at her, puzzled. Please, if they get smashed, I won't be able to read. But won't you want to read in bed tonight? No, I, I need to catch up on some sleep. Elsie placed the precious spectacles in Annie's outstretched hand. Oh, why don't I look after your script too? I can bring it in tomorrow to rehearsal. Elsie walked down the steps to the pavement. Already her legs had begun to buckle. She stopped and turned. Annie Duncan gave her a wave. You're sure you'll be all right? Course, I'm a big girl now, Elsie said jokingly. She's actually very small. Well, sort of, inside. Annie Duncan laughed and closed the door. Elsie crossed the road in a daze of mounting nausea and panic. They shut her in the coal bunker of the bombed house at the end of her street. 
As soon as Elsie had spotted Marjorie sitting on the wall with the others, she knew it was pointless even to try to escape. Resistance would only make Marjorie angrier. She made a half-hearted effort to cross the road, but within seconds she was on the pavement underneath them. A strange feeling came over her, as if she had been chloroformed. She wasn't inside her skin anymore. She felt stunned, yet removed, as though looking from a great height down at herself being pummeled. It was only when she realised where they were dragging her that horror jolted her back into herself again. Remembering how she had been left trapped in rubble in rising flood water, she began to put up a struggle. But nothing could match Marjorie's fury. Elsie had no sooner been shoved into the coal bunker when she heard the entrance being blocked with the surrounding rubble. For what seemed like hours, Elsie listened to them talking outside. Every now and then they would call her names or make jokes about her size, throwing heavy objects at the bunker. After a while, there was silence. But Elsie suspected it was a trick, that if she attempted to push the lid open, they would pounce again and do something even worse to her. Marjorie said that if she tried to escape, she would drop a live rat in there and shut them in together. Elsie believed her. Although my new book, Just Henry, had been triggered off by an image of an old cinema seen in my head at three o'clock in the morning, it was only when I had finished writing it that I remembered a scene in A Spoonful of Jam where Elsie goes to the cinema. I suspect that I'd wanted to return there and stay a little longer. As you might have guessed, my main character in Just Henry loves going to the cinema. His name is Henry Dodge and he's 14 years old. He goes at least three times a week. More if he can earn extra money doing odd jobs at a grocery shop. But in 1949, when my story begins, it was quite common to go to the cinema three times a week. Well, few people had television sets. The wireless was the main source of entertainment if you could afford one. And these cinemas weren't like today's cinemas, housing 150-odd people with only one main film and trailers. Magnificent pieces of architecture with paintings along the walls and soaring ceilings. Some were like cathedrals. Others like grand Tudor mansions, breathtaking Greek temples or art deco edifices. In the streets outside, there were still bomb buildings and rationing. People were living in crowded rooms in dreary conditions. Can you imagine what it must have been like to leave that world and walk into a foyer with a wide stairway covered in red carpet with gold chandeliers and ornately decorated mirrors. It was like entering a palace. And in fact, the cinemas were called picture palaces. They housed up to 2,000 people 
and often had an orchestra pit left over from the days of the silent movies. A massive organ called a Wurlitzer would emerge majestically from its depths with a man in evening dress pulling out all the stops literally as it rose. And the film programme consisted of two full-length films with trailers, advertisements, newsreels and cartoons. And if you were really clever, you could remain quietly in your seat and watch the whole programme all over again. But Henry knows that soon he won't be able to see so many films. The summer holidays are coming to an end and his last year at school is looming. It's a year he is not looking forward to. The school leaving age has only recently gone up to 15, and the children in the previous class were so angry at being forced to stay another year that the doddery old teacher left in charge of the brand new Form 4 couldn't keep control, and the pupils were constantly being kept in for detentions after school. Detentions would mean that Henry wouldn't be able to work at the grocer's and earn extra money for more cinema tickets. But when Henry returns to school, he finds, to his surprise, there's a new teacher for Form 4. An ex-Navy man in his 30s, fresh from Teachers Training College, a man who looks as though he will brook no nonsense, a man full of new ideas. Henry is beginning to think that his last year at school is not going to be so bad after all. Until, that is, the end of his first week. In three months' time, it will be 1950, began Mr Finch. To mark this passage through the half-century, we are going to be looking at life 50 years ago. In addition to what we will be doing in the lessons, I will be expecting you all to do a bit of detective work. A hand shot up in the front. Yes, Mavis. Do you mean homework, sir? Oh, in a sense, yes. There was a smothered groan of protest. But not on your own. You'll have plenty of time. The presentations won't be till the end of term. Presentations, muttered Henry. On Monday, I asked you to write down what you did in the holidays and what you might wish for if you had a magic wand. And that was my way of getting to know you all a little better. I am putting you into 12 groups of three and one group of four. The first group will be Jane, Ivy and Doris. You expressed an interest in nursing and looking after babies. Your project is to find out about nursing in 1899. You three, he said, pointing to three friends in the front, you will look into marriage in 1899. I want to know about weddings for the rich and the poor. Davis, Kemp and Roberts, I want you to look into lives of the people who settled in America 50 years ago. One of you said he'd like to live with the Red Indians. Which Indians? Sioux, Cherokee, Mohican, find out about their customs and how they were treated then. He then picked a football trio and a greyhound racing trio. Another group of three had to find out about sweet shops. Dodge, you will be looking at films, 
You will be working with Jeffreys and Morgan. Henry heard some of his classmates gasp. Morgan, continued Mr Finch, you expressed interest in being a projectionist, so maybe you could concentrate on how they showed the films then. Pip Morgan was nodding and smiling. Henry could hardly make out what Mr Finch said next. The teacher's voice seemed muffled and a great acid gob of nausea had risen into Henry's mouth, burning the back of his throat. Through the blur, he heard Mr Finch talking to the other groups. Every Friday, I'll see how you're getting on, he said. In December, each group will give a short presentation to the class. Now raise your arms, those of you with grandparents or aunts or uncles. Henry slowly raised his hand. He noticed that Jeffreys and Morgan didn't. Ask them what 14-year-old girls and boys were doing in 1899. And remember, if you listen to what people say, you'll discover that history lies not only in books, but it's all around you. Well, at the end of the lesson, Henry was slow to put his books away. He watched Mr Finch tidy up, but instead of following the others out, he remained seated. Out you go, Dodge, said Mr Finch. Sir, Henry began quickly, can you put me with another group? I'm quite happy with the groups I've chosen. Now off you go. But uh, I, I can't be put with Geoffrey, sir. Why not? It's family business, sir. You're going to have to tell me more than that, Dodge. Henry took a deep breath. My dad saved his father's life, but his dad never even turned up to my father's funeral. And he's a deserter. And this happened when? Nine years ago. And uh, did Jeffreys fail to report to his unit? No, sir, said Henry, puzzled. Well, he was only five, sir. Exactly. In other words, whatever his father is guilty of, he's not guilty of the same crime. But my grandmother would be upset. I'm sorry about that, Dodge. Oh, we don't talk to one another. Perhaps it's time you started. Henry couldn't think of anything to say. Is that all, Dodge? No, sir. There's Pip. Pip? Morgan. Well, well, we don't mix with boys like him. Oh? Why is that? It's just one of those things. No one does. Does he have impetigo? No, sir. Or any other infectious disease? No, sir. It's just my grandmother says, because he was born on the wrong side of the blanket, it means... Well, he paused. Well, he's unlucky, and if you're seen with him, you'll be unlucky too, with jobs and things. Mr Finch stared silently at him for so long that it was unnerving. Do you know what being born on the wrong side of the blanket means, he said, eventually. Henry felt indignant. Of course he knew. It is the way you're born, sir. It's like a superstition. Ah. Oh. He gave a weary sigh. I think it's about time someone told you. But I know, sir, protested Henry. No, you don't. Being born on the wrong side of the blanket means being illegitimate. Now, Henry is shocked when he realises that Pip's mother is unmarried. He's even more shocked when Mr Finch makes it quite clear that it makes no difference to him that Pip Morgan is a member of his form and as such he will be treated equally and he tells Henry to get on with it. 
but it's not until half term that Henry does as he's told. Up until then, he's found a way of avoiding Jeffreys and Morgan by volunteering to help the school caretaker clear out a room which is filled with junk. It's to be a dark room so that Mr Finch can teach any interested pupils how to develop films. But Mr Finch is not fooled. He's guessed why Henry's so keen to help out at break times, and on the day before half-term, he confronts him, gives him an envelope containing the phone numbers of the two boys' lodgings, and warns him that if he doesn't make use of them during the holiday, he will be prevented from taking part in the presentation. Henry eventually visits their lodgings and is surprised by what he discovers. The two boys volunteer to help him paint the now empty room with a precious pot of black paint that a woman called Mrs Beaumont has managed to obtain for him. Mrs Beaumont, she gets him into the A-films and she lends him a camera. Henry is sure that Mr Finch will now stop ignoring him in lessons and be more friendly towards him. So he's somewhat alarmed when he wants to have yet another private word with Henry on his first day back. Why did you paint the room black? asked Mr Finch. Henry kept his fingers crossed, hoping that Mr Finch wasn't still angry with him. You wanted a dark room, sir. I thought that might be the reason. He cleared his throat. You don't need to have dark walls for a dark room. You could turn a bathroom into a dark room simply by covering the windows and putting a board over the bath to use as a table for the trays and equipment. A dark room means not being in daylight. I suppose a better word for it would be a dim room. To avoid exposure, you just need to turn off the light. Oh, said Henry awkwardly. Not that I'm not grateful. In fact, Mr Finch hurriedly examined his feet and Henry noticed the corner of his mouth twitching. You see, when Miss Dawson heard that the room had been emptied, she told the headmaster just before half-term that well, she'd had her eye on it for some time as another laundry room for teaching the girls washing and ironing. The headmaster gave her permission to move in this morning. Oh, no, sir. However, continued Mr Finch, unaware that your decorating team had visited it yesterday, as indeed I was. We wanted it to be a surprise, sir, which it was, lad, which it was. Mr Finch looked away again for a moment. Miss Dawson was all uh, set to move in this morning with her mangle and uh, ironing board. He broke off, unable to speak. And she walked into a black room, finished Henry for him, imagining the look on Miss Dawson's face with a red light bulb swinging from the ceiling, added Mr Finch, his voice shaking. Well, for a while, neither of them spoke. Well, what did he say, sir? Henry asked, hesitantly. She, uh, she didn't say anything, lad. She screamed and ran out. Henry struggled to keep a straight face. By now, neither of them dared look each other in the eye. So it looks as though we'll have our darkroom after all. Do you mean we might have lost it if we haven't painted it black, sir? He nodded. 
So it's turned out to be necessary after all, said Mr. Finch. Henry couldn't help smiling. This is one of those conversations which never happened, Dodge. What conversation, sir? asked Henry innocently. It is in this darkroom, while developing a roll of film, that Henry discovers something shattering. From that moment, his world begins to resemble one of the thrillers he's seen on the big screen. It's strange to think that this sixth book came as a result of a chain of ideas which all started from my very first book, Goodnight Mr. Tom. So how did that book start? Well, years ago, I used to work in theatres up and down the UK, including a couple of seasons here in Scotland, in, in Perth. And I've been writing bits of this and pieces of that for years. And I suddenly wanted to focus on one kind of writing. And I decided to write ten short stories, but I wanted a theme to use as a catalyst, a jumping-off point. And round about that time, I was in a musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. The catalyst, I decided, was to be one of the songs. It went... It was red and yellow and green and brown and crimson and cream and silver and rose and azure and lemon and russet and grey and purple and white and pink and orange and blue. Eight pairs of colours, eight stories, a ninth story based on blue and a tenth one which encompassed all the colours. I chose the first pair of colours, began to daydream around them, asking myself what these two colours made me think of. Well, good night, Mr Tom began with a short story based on the colours green and brown. One afternoon, sitting in a laundrette while my clothes were whirling around in a washing machine, I suddenly saw an image in my head of a small, frightened boy standing in a graveyard. He was wearing a label, so I knew instantly that he was a Second World War evacuee. Well, my mother had been a nurse in that war during the Blitz, and she'd been on a children's ward in a London hospital. I remembered her telling me stories about two of the boys she had nursed. I also remember the graveyard I had seen on the day of her funeral. Noticing a house through the trees, I asked someone what it was doing there. I was told, that's where the man who looks after the graves lives. I decided that's where I would set my story. The house became a cottage and I set the graveyard in a country village. That short story was about the boy's first day as an evacuee with an elderly widower. When I'd finished the tenth short story, I could not get that little boy and the man I called Tom Oakley out of my head. I wanted to know what happened to them next. So in between acting jobs, I began to find out more about the Second World War and in fits and starts, I wrote the first draft. Now, for those of you who know little about evacuation, when the government decided to send children in their thousands out of the cities away from possible bombs and gas, they organised their evacuation from the cities pretty well. However, it was not quite so organised at the receiving end. The country people will be waiting on a station platform, <coughs> expecting 20 children to arrive at 2 o'clock, and then 300 of them would arrive exhausted at 10 o'clock. They would be taken to church halls, where they would be stared at and prodded at and chosen. The building officer would then go from house to house, 
trying to find somewhere for the rest to stay. And unless the occupants had some medical reason why they couldn't take them in, they were often forced to. Sometimes the children had to sleep in a church with the billeting officer and use the font for washing in. And members of the WVS, that's the Women's Voluntary Service, would be busy making mattresses for them out of heavy cotton bags stuffed with straw. Well, when the billeting officer arrives with William Beach at Tom Oakley's cottage, Tom is not too pleased. Since the death of his young wife and baby some 40 years back, he's kept himself to himself, not counting, that is, the dogs he's been living with for company. But the latest one is a young black and white collie called Sammy. But the tales he's heard about evacuees don't seem to fit the tiny boy in front of him wild and ungrateful and homesick are the adjectives he has heard used to describe them. This boy looks terrified, as though he expects a beating if he so much as breathes. Tom takes him in, but he's determined it will only be for one night. But because he hasn't been expecting him, he needs to buy extra milk. So he takes William to a farm where William sees his first cow. On the way back, they're caught in a rainstorm. Willie ran up the pathway towards the cottage. Through the graves and under the oak tree, his shoes squelching. They ran into the hall, Tom's boots clattering on the tiles. Tom shook the rain from his overcoat and cap and proceeded to undo his boots. Sammy stood on the mat by the open door, looking out at the sheets of rain that were now whipping across the graveyard. Willie struggled with his Macintosh. His fingers were moved with the cold. You're a salt through, said Tom. He pointed to his bespattered plimsolls. Take them old canvas things off. Stay here while I put some newspapers down. Willie pulled off the weighted shoes and stood in the dark hallway, shivering helplessly, his teeth rattling inside his clamped jaw. Well, after much shuffling from the living room, Tom opened the door. He'd laid newspapers in front of the range and was putting out blackouts at the windows, so that but for the glow of embers from the fire, the room was almost in total darkness. He lit a gas lamp which hung from the ceiling and an oil lamp on the table. Stay on them newspapers, you too, he said to Sammy, who was panting rapidly and sending out a constant spray of water with his tail. He added some coat to the fire and left the room. Willie hopped on one leg and then on the other in front of it. Steam began to rise from his jersey and shorts. He heard the front door being closed and Tom returned with his brown paper bag. He placed it on the table and took out the contents. There was one small towel, a piece of soap, a toothbrush, an old Bible, and an envelope with to whom it may concern written on it. He looked under the towel for some underclothes, night clothes, but there were none. He opened the envelope. Willie heard the paper being torn and turned to watch him. He knew the letter was from his mum. 
He checked again that his wet socks were pulled up and stood very still. Dear sir or madam, it read, I asked if Willie could stay with God-fearing people, so I hope he is. Like most boys, he's full of sin, but he's promised to be good. I can't visit him. I'm a widow and I haven't got the money, the war and that. I've put the belt in for when he's bad and I've sewn him in for the winter. I, I usually keep him in when I wash his clothes and I got them special for the cold weather, so he should be all right. Tell him his mum said he'd better be good. Mrs Beach. Tom folded the letter and put it in his pocket. He found the belt at the bottom of the bag. It was a brown leather one with a steel buckle. He put it back in the bag and took out the towel, soap and toothbrush. Willie stood with his back to the fire and stared uneasily up at him. Tom was angry. While you're in my house, he said in a choked voice, you'll live by my rules. I ain't ever it a child, and if I ever do, it'll be with a skin of me out. You got that? Willie nodded. So we can forget that old belt. And he lifted the bag from the table and took it out of the room. <coughs> Willie turned to face the fire, his head bowed over the range. His shoulders felt tense, and the top of the range hissed as a tear escaped from his eyes. He heard the door close behind him and hurriedly wiped his cheeks. Tom put a bundle on the armchair. Best get out of them wet things, he said, kneeling down beside him, so as I can dry them for tomorrow. Willie sniffed. Tom peeled off his wet jersey and shorts. And them socks, he said, as Willie clung to the tops of them. He pulled them off. Tom said nothing. There was no need. Willie's arms and legs were covered in bruises, wheels and sores. Tom went to pull off his vest. Willie flinched and touched the top of his arm. No one, eh? he asked quietly. Willie nodded and blushed. Ask be careful then. And he tugged gently at the vest. It won't come off, mister, said Willie. And then Tom understood what his mother had written in the letter. His vest had been sewn to the waist of his undershorts. Oh, soon settle that, said Tom, picking up a pair of scissors from the bookcase. Willie shrunk backwards. I'll sew them back when you goes home, I promise. Still, Willie didn't move. I promise, he repeated. Well, he stepped forward and allowed him to snip away at the stitching. He dried Willie's thin, bruised body, wrapped him up in a towel and sat him in the armchair. Taking an old flannel nightshirt from the bundle, he cut the body and sleeves in half. Stood Willie on the armchair, took the towel away, placed the nightshirt over his head and cut more away until finally Willie's hands and feet came into view. He handed him a thick pair of woolen socks. The heels almost reached the back of Willie's knees. He gave a small, tense smile and watched Tom hang his clothes over a clothes horse by the fire. Well, later, Tom made Willie some cocoa and left him with Sammy to look at some books while he went upstairs to put up more blackouts. Willie sat back and traced his fingers over the pictures. 
He blew over his cocoa and gave Sammy some of the skin, feeling rather important at doing so. Tom appeared at the door with a lamp, and Sammy began to crawl through his legs. Ah, thought you was being too good for it to last, Tom said, as Sammy tugged at his trouser leg. Now give me the cocoa, William. You carry the book. Willie climbed up the ladder, but the enormous socks kept making him slip. Well, after much juggling and balancing with Coco, Book and Dog, they all three eventually reached the attic. It was a tiny room shaped rather like a ridge tent. The ceiling sloped downwards at both sides with a, a straight piece in the centre. The wooden floor was covered by two mats. A small bed lay under one eave and blackouts were pinned on the slanting window beside it. Tom had swept the room clean and affixed a lamp to a hook on the white plaster ceiling. It was hanging there alight. And beside the bed was a low wooden table. For your books and such, said Tom. He pointed to a china chamber pot on the floor at the end of the bed. As so as you don't have to go outside if you want to go to the toilet, he explained. The heat from the front room rose up through the floorboards so that the room although bare, was warm. Willie crawled under the bed and curled up into a ball. What are you doing? asked Tom. You get into it, not under it. What? Right inside? exclaimed Willie. Tom drew back the sheets and Willie climbed in between them. He stroked the blankets with his hands. Sammy, meanwhile, was standing impatiently at Tom's side, wagging his tail in lunatic fashion. Go on, you daft dog, said Tom, and he leapt on the bed between Willie's arms and licked his face. Slowly, Willie put his arms around him, gave a small cry and burst into tears. Sorry, mister, he blurted out, and he buried his head into the dog's fur. Tom sat on the edge of the bed until the crying had subsided a little. Here, he said, handing him a large white handkerchief. Have a blow in that. Willie looked up shamefacedly. I ain't ungrateful, mister. Honest. I'm happy. I have ideas for three other books, and the seeds of two of them are in Just Henry and A Spoonful of Jam, but that's all I'm going to tell you. <laughs> but hopefully when my next book is published, um, perhaps I can come back here to Edinburgh and reveal more. Thank you very much. <laughs> question and answer. Question and answer. Thank you very much, Michelle. Um, does anybody have any questions? We've got one over here. Do you want to speak up or wait for the microphone? You're going to speak up. Go on, give us a big shout. What age was I when I bought my first book? Wrote your first book. Oh, my first book. Oh, God. oh, I was in my 30s. I, I, wrote, I was writing all sorts of things, scripts and lyrics and 
and everything. So it wasn't until my 30s that I wrote my full, first full-length book. Yeah. Anyone else? We've got oh, one just there. <laughs> when you were a child, did you uh, love the cinema like Henry? Well, I, when I, I spent some of my childhood, uh, as I mentioned, in Australia, and we had Saturday morning pictures, and we had the serial where everyone booed and cheered, and we had endless chases and leaping over walls and things. And then in the interval, uh, in Australia, they had this big um, uh, marketplace going on in the, down the aisles where children would swap cards, marbles, and comics. And then you sat down and you had the big, big film like Lassie or Greyfriars Bobby or, or whatever. But when I came back to England, my mother wouldn't let me go to Saturday morning cinema anymore. I don't know why. But, um, yes, yeah, so I, remem I remember that. And we all had a cinema down the road as well. Mm. And, of course, we had all the old films on the televisions, of course. Uh, we've got a few people right at the very back, yeah. We studied good by Mr. Tom in school. Was that intended to be studied in school or was it just to be read? I, I, I must tell you the story. I, vi I visited a school recently and this boy took me aside and he said, he said, we were doing these comprehension exercises on Goodnight Mr. Tom. And then our teacher read your website and read that you don't like people doing comprehension exercises for our books. So she stopped doing them and we went <laughs> <laughs> like that. So things like adjectives and adverbs and all that horrible stuff. Yes, I absolutely hate that. But if it's to do with getting to know the characters better and things like that, I, I don't mind that so much. Um, well, I have two questions. First, in Goodnight Mr. Tom, what gave you the, the inspiration for Zack, the character? Do you know, it's very strange when you're writing books. Some characters, they grow and grow and grow slowly. And some characters, they just appear. And Zack just appeared. It's like when I was writing Just Henry, I kept do, trying to do research. And this character kept jumping up and down at the side of my eyes. And I, and I knew, ev knew everything about him. And that was Pip Morgan I've mentioned, who at the time, to be illegitimate in 1949 was horrendous. Um, you know, it's a completely different world now. And I thought, I don't know why you're looking so optimistic, because you've got everything going against you. Would you please go away, because I'm trying to take notes. And back he came, up, up, down. And then in the end, I said, OK, I give in. You're in the story. <laughs> so, he, so some character, and Zach was like one of those. He was just sort of there. Excuse me, but how do you manage to get all the characters' feelings in for research? Is, do you just know some of it? I think it helped. Uh, when I was younger, um, uh, because I was even much, I was much thinner than I am now, and I, I looked young for my age. So when I used to get work, sometimes if I wasn't playing middle-aged people, I was playing children. And when you train to be to act, you have to really go get under the skin of your character. And I approached any child part that I was playing with the same, uh, uh, you know, the same amount of energy as I was if, it was if I was playing an adult. So for instance, once I had to play a woman, a child called Helen Keller, who was deaf, dumb, and blind. And I went and visited a school for deaf children. And I also tried to imagine what it was like not being able to see. And Helen Keller was an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, little girl, because eventually she did learn to communicate through her fingers. And she went to university. 
I mean, she was quite an extraordinary. So, but so when I was, I was, you know, so I was used to having sometimes having to play uh, children, and like I was a, the the leader of a gang in *Roar of the Grease Paint*, *Smell of the Crowd*. So I think that sort of helped me. I think if anyone's doing drama at school and have to get under the skin of a character, that can help you when you're writing characters in a story. Thank you. And then we had a. Do we have anyone down here? Um, do you think that when you did acting? that you were inspired by either the people that you acted or the people on set or whatever that gave you ideas for books that you were going to write? Um, just trying to think. I don't know. What, what I found that I found difficult was that I couldn't write and act at the same time. I had to keep it, when I was working in what they, the repertory system was, you rehearsed one thing during the day and you performed another at night time. And so I could only really work on, say, a story on Sunday. Because if I worked during the week, I, I remember had terrifying moments where I was in the middle of a play with a full house, and I'd suddenly think, oh, I just thought of an idea for that story. And I'd think, oh, no, I'm on stage. There's 400 people watching. So I thought I, you know, I had to kind of divide it up into sort of sections. But I haven't really answered your question. I'm just trying to think. Um, I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't aware of it. But obviously, when you're dealing with dialogue, I love writing dialogue. And of course, that's what I was handling all the time. So that might have helped me, the fact that I was having to uh, you know, deal with uh, speaking a lot of dialogue. Mm. Do you want to pass the microphone okay. forward? There's just someone in white there. Thank you. Um, I forgot what I was going to say. we come back? Yeah. yeah. There's well, someone down here. It's just trying to. Was yes. someone down here? Yes. Will you don't ask him to start Big something? Voice. What other author would I like to see at the book festival? Oh, golly. There's just so many wonderful authors around. I mean, I think you could just almost close your eyes and just, you know, just point to someone and, and you know, you, you get an interesting talk. I think it's just... So I, that sort of doesn't really answer your question, does it? But just there's so many. They, they've all got something different to give. That's the thing. Come at the back there. How do you feel about Goodnight Mr. Tom being televised? Well, I was um, well, I was delighted because the, the thing that I was worried about is I know that what you don't realize is when a lot of people don't realize is that when a book is adapted for the screen, it, they're two different mediums. You can't put the whole book on screen, but what you hope for as a writer is that the heart of the book will be there, and the heart of Goodnight Mr. Tom is you have two people who've been very hurt by life in different ways. Circumstances have flung them together and they heal one another. And I thought that was there in the television version. Um, so I was, you know, I was very, very pleased. And I had some lovely people in it, uh, lovely casting director. Um, it kept going on and on. It was sort of one thing after the other. I remember one day I was asked to go to the filming and the director said, oh, by the way, have you heard of Carl Davis? And I said, yes, yes. And he said, well, he's going to be doing the music, you know, and I'm, it went on, it was just, Magic, really. Got time for one more question. Ooh. We've got someone right at the front here. What's the best character you've wrote of so far? You've, that I've written so far? What's the best character I've written so far? Well, it's, this is a bit of a get out here because I keep thinking, well, it's probably the next one I'm going to, to write about because um, there's so many favorite characters that I like and I like for different reasons. So. Um, perhaps the best one is yet to come, I don't know. Are you writing anything at the moment? You've got any ideas? No. Anything? Do you do anything like 
uh, slideshows on the computer? Or anyone here do any? Because there's all different ways of writing. It doesn't have to be just words. You can write in. You can tell stories visually, using um, photography and animation and all sorts. Probably got quite a few budding authors. I bet you there are. Yes. And um, people who uh, draw pictures, of course. And of course, a photograph tells a story. We might have a, a photographer here, somebody who loves doing book jackets or whatever. Yes? Thank you very much, Michelle. And thank everyone for the questions. They were brilliant. Michelle's going to be doing a book signing just in the children's bookshop, which is just outside here and just to your right. So we're going to head on over there. And if you would like to join us in a couple of minutes' time, it would be wonderful to see you. You can have another chat with Michelle. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you.